0: the fourth Sunday of Advent, and I mentioned last week, but Advent is not a fancy word for Christmas. It actually comes from a Latin word that means arrival or coming, and so what we are doing is we're pondering the coming of Jesus during this Advent season. Now, just a little while ago, Sarah Freeman, Sarah, wherever you are, thank you very much for reading the Isaiah chapter 24 passage, but as Sarah read that, she and I talked a little bit before church this morning, and she said, it seems like it starts off and it's a little gloomy, and, uh, and then she said, it seems like there's a transition, and that's exactly right. That's what that passage is all about. That passage is all about how if there is no savior, then there is no joy, there is no happiness. There's nothing to celebrate, there's nothing to rejoice over. It isn't until the second half of those verses that we, or the people of Israel, were able to rejoice in the knowledge that a savior was coming to redeem the world. That's what this Sunday is all about. This fourth Sunday is all about this concept of joy, Now, in just a moment after I pray, uh, David and the rest of the crew is going to open the sermon by playing a song that you've all heard before, Joy to the World. But he's going to play a rendition that is going to be less familiar to most of you. This version is actually more somber, not unlike the Isaiah 24 passage, but it's still triumphant. It's just that the sadness has been integrated into the joy. It's more weighty than the traditional version just like this topic of joy. And so before we begin, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much that um, we can be people of joy, not because there's no suffering in our lives, not because there's no hardship, um, but rather because the hope uh, that we have in your son Jesus and his coming to make all things new is something that we can trust in, Father, and that gives us the ability to be joyful even in the midst of life's sorrows and suffering. So, Father, I pray um, today that, uh, that you would enable us to rejoice as we remember you, our good Father, and your Son, Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So some of you can hear that music, that it's heavy, it's weighty. And part of the reason that it's heavy and weighty is joy is actually heavy and weighty. Happiness is like cotton candy, and joy is much more like a steak and a baked potato. It's much more substantial. Joy, interestingly, it takes the brokenness and the suffering and also the happiness of life, and it integrates it all and weaves it together, and yet it finds um, hope in something that's transcendent. We'll get to that in just a moment. The Bible talks a lot about joy, we know that. Maybe not quite so much as it does about love, but still, it talks about joy a lot. And if we're honest, the word sounds a little bit archaic to most of us, a little old. It's a word that's fallen out of common parlance. We don't use it very often. To most of our ears, the word joy sounds like somebody's name, like Joy Waddell. Or um, maybe it sounds like a word that makes its way onto a greeting card around Christmas time or maybe onto a sign that you might see in hobby lobby, right? It's a little out of fashion. But for those of us who have an idea of what joy truly is, it seems like an impossible ideal in the midst of the difficulty and sufferings of our lives, and yet the Bible assumes that joy is integral, that it's an intrinsic piece of the Christian life, of the life of all believers that should be present The angel who announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds definitely assumed that the incarnation, that is, Jesus entering into the world as a baby in Bethlehem, that 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 would bring and evoke great joy. Luke chapter 2 records the angel's message, says this, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid." And the angel said unto them fear not for behold i bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior which is christ the lord the angel assumed that the incarnation would bring joy to all people paul even after experiencing very harsh persecution at the hands of both jews and gentiles wrote this he wrote be joyful always pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In other words, that joy is rooted in something, someone else. And again, while he was in prison, he wrote the following, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, that's Philippians 4. Clearly for Jesus, clearly for Paul, clearly for God, clearly for the angels, joy is a non-negotiable reality of the Christian life. But what is it? What is joy? And how in the world can we be expected to be joyful in the midst of all times, as Paul recommends? What does the Bible have to say about joy and our reason for it? Let's begin by asking a very simple question. What is joy? The word joy is a translation from the Greek word kara. Kara is related to the word charis, which uh, we translate, or the English uh, commentators translate, as grace. And so it's related to that word grace. Grace, of course, can be defined as undeserved or unmerited favor. In other words, it's when you're positively rewarded for something you didn't actually earn or accomplish. And to contrast grace, let's talk about mercy. Mercy is when you aren't giving some negative implication of something that you do deserve. So mercy would be when you get pulled over for speeding and the policeman only gives you a warning. That's what mercy is. But grace is when that same policeman might pull you over for no reason at all and would give you $1,000. I'll take both. Um, But joy, again, just to place it in there, it's related to this concept of unmerited favor, joy, grace. It's also appropriate to contrast joy with happiness. In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis does just that. He wrote this. He said, I call it joy which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it all uh, for all the pleasures in the world. In other words, there's something more weighty that there's something more heavy and gravitas-like about joy. C.S. Lewis is right. Both pleasure and happiness are actually momentary. We kind of know that. Happiness in particular might be defined as a positive emotional response to something that's imminent. That means it's close by. Or impermanent. It doesn't last. For example, many of you in this room were happy when UGA went undefeated through the first 12 games of the season, right? A lot of happiness. But then they played Alabama, and we know how that turned out. Clearly, that positive emotion was in relationship to something that couldn't last indefinitely. It might help to define sadness here as another contrasting element as we sort of seek to understand joy. While happiness can be, can be described as a positive emotional response to something imminent or impermanent, sadness can similarly be defined as a negative emotional response to something imminent or impermanent. Some of you know all too well, sadness can seem at times to be the truest of all things. It can seem to be the thing that's most real. It's totally appropriate to be sad and sorrowful at imminent and immediate tragedy. Jesus surely was. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah tells us this about him, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So Jesus was a man of sorrows. The Apostle John described Jesus' response at the death of his friend Lazarus, saying that Jesus wept. Jesus was sorrowful, and it's appropriate for us to be sorrowful as well. But joy transcends both our happiness and our sadness. That's why the psalmist could write, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. So, in light of its etymology and the happiness-sadness contrast, what is it? What is joy? For this morning's purposes, we'll define joy as a positive emotional response to the permanent and transcendent grace of God. So, We're happy when something in the here and now goes our way. Our football team wins. Someone gives us a gift that we really like or our kids are particularly well-behaved on a road trip. In the same manner, we're sad when something in the here and now doesn't go our way. Our team loses. We don't get the job that we hoped and worked so hard to get. Our kids are particularly badly behaved on a trip or maybe when our significant other breaks up with us. Joy, however, transcends the moment. Joy transcends any moment, because joy is a positive emotional response to the permanent and transcendent grace of God. In other words, the transcendent and permanent reality of God's grace, that unmerited favor to us, the things that we get from him that we didn't deserve, but he lovingly granted us, that the reality of God's grace is so much better than our imminent reality that no matter what happens in the here and now, we can rejoice in the then and there. Does that make sense? Let's dig a little bit more. The question I think that we should be asking here is well, what are the permanent, what are the transcendent realities that allow us to be joyful? What are those graces that God gives us? I'm gonna just sort of outline a handful of these. First of all, we because we've been rescued by Jesus, we can be joyful. So there's something about this idea of salvation, there's something about this idea of rescue. That is permanent and that is transcendent listen again to the word of the angel in luke chapter 2 and the angel said unto them that is the shepherds fear not for behold i bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior which is christ the lord so peter then makes the same point to new believers in his letter first peter he says this though you have not seen him that is jesus You love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so what we see here is the angel and Peter both link this idea of the ability to rejoice and be joyful with this idea of salvation. It hardly needs to be said, but the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us in his life in his substitutionary atonement and resurrection is permanent and transcendent, right? Salvation for believers is permanent and transcendent. It's transcendent in that it is a heavenly and spiritual reality, right? Your name is written in the book of life. And it's permanent in the sense that if we've truly been born again, as Jesus says in John chapter three, that our salvation for those who truly know him cannot be lost Or taken away, and so we can't experience joy. What else? Because God protects us, we can be joyful. Listen to the words of Psalm 5, verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy, and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And so this conversation about protection could be a much larger discussion, but God, suffice it to say, does indeed protect us. We are safe from the penalty of sin. We are safe from the permanent effects of sin, like death and like separation from God. Those will be undone. We are safe from the capricious hardships of life. What I mean by that is Scripture is clear that God won't allow anything to happen to us that isn't for our good and for His glory in other words there's nothing meaningless in the life of the believer that's the point of romans 8:28 it's the point of hebrews 12 and essentially what it's saying both of those passages are saying is that our suffering plays an integral part in our smaller stories and also in the larger story of god and as a result we're protected from the meaninglessness of life those of you who are philosophically minded should rejoice in that what else because God preserves us, we can be joyful. In Psalm 63, David wrote this. He said, My soul be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. God not only protects us, he preserves And he strengthens us. We see this preservation with Elijah, where God follows him into the desert. Well, by where by the way, Elijah is running away from God. God lets him rest, and he prepares food to strengthen him for the remainder of his journey. We see God strengthening Joshua in his encounter with the Angel of the Lord, where Joshua goes, "Whose side are you on?" And the Angel of the Lord goes, "Wrong question." We see God preserving. Uh, Jacob in his angelic wrestling match at Peniel. And of course, we see God strengthening Jesus before his time of temptation in the wilderness when God reminded his son of who he was. If you remember, God's proclamation over his son was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are my son. I love you, and I'm happy with you. Many of us have experienced and could tell stories of God's strength and power preserving us and strengthening us as we face suffering, emotional pain, and even death. In the midst of all that, let's join with David in proclaiming, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. What else? Because God has power over the evil one, we can be joyful. After Jesus had spent some time training the disciples and his followers, he sent them out to do the work without him, Luke records their response upon returning. Verse 17 of chapter 10 begins by saying this, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, great job. People often want to know about the reality of evil spirits. They want to know about the reality of Satan. In particular, they want to know to what degree evil spirits or Satan can harm, influence, or impact them. And again, this topic is so big that it could be another sermon or another book altogether, but suffice it to say that God has authority and power even over the evil spiritual forces in our world. In the story of Job, Satan has to come before God in submission to his power. In the Gospels, demons cry out in what seems like terror when they come into the presence of Jesus. In Revelation 12, we read that Satan and his minions are defeated, cast down, and thrown out. The evil one is very powerful, but he is not powerful enough. Our God protects us from the evil one. What else can we rejoice in? We can rejoice because we've been granted a permanent inheritance. Look at Colossians 1. Paul's in prison. He's getting ready to die to be martyred for his faith. And yet he writes the following, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. In other words, you get to show up with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so Paul could recommend joy and suffering because he had experienced it himself. He knew that he had an inheritance that no flogging, no imprisonment, or even any capital punishment could ever take away. Similarly, the author of Hebrews could recognize the joy of those who had experienced suffering and loss precisely because of their future inheritance. He writes this in Hebrews 10. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Seems ironic. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. As Christians, we can be joyful in all circumstances because we have a heavenly inheritance that cannot be taken away even by death. Now, you can just sort of do a word search in an online commentary. You could type in the word joy and there are lots and lots of different reasons to be joyful. I could go on and on, but I'm going to pause here. And like I try to always do, I want to end with the good news. The book of Hebrews is written to struggling Christians in order to help them and in order to help us hold on to our faith in the midst of suffering and in the midst of despair and in the midst of temptation. In chapter 12, we're giving a, given a wonderful insight into why Jesus willingly and knowingly went to the cross. We read in verses one and two, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let me just pause here for a second. This is not a sprint. It's not 50 yards. It's not 60 yards. It's not 100 yards. This is a much longer race. This is one of those races, you know, this may be a cross-country race. Maybe it's a 10K, but it's the one where at mile seven you see snot running down the side of someone's face, right? And they're heaving, they're suffering, They're in pain. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. It's a difficult race. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer. In other words, he went before us. It's the archegos. He went before us, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And listen to this verse. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. People often willingly endure some hardship because of some joy that awaits them. They may run a marathon to experience the exhilaration of accomplishing something really difficult and meaningful. People drive eight hours with a four and a six year old so that their children can experience the wonder of Disney. Mothers spend hours in labor in order to bring a baby into the world. And Jesus volunteered to die in your place on the cross because you were worth it to him. You were, you are his joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and that joy gave Jesus the strength to persevere. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Jesus experienced joy at the thought of reuniting you with his Father. How does that make you feel? Just pause for a moment. Think about that, that you were his joy. And that because of the joy that he felt when he thought about reuniting you with his father, he went to the cross. Maybe you feel a little bit guilty. Maybe you feel a little bit shy, like that level of affection is just a little too much. Maybe you feel empowered. Maybe you feel loved. But it's this transcendent reality that we celebrate here in Advent It's that reality that allowed G.K. Chesterton to write the following about the followers of Jesus. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. We are to be people of joy. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do indeed have these transcendent and permanent realities, Father. And Father, those realities, Father, as we um, anchor ourselves into them, as we grasp tightly onto them, Father... We know that they protect us from despair. Father, we know that they enable us um, to wade through the sufferings of life. Father, we know that they enable us to face threats and hardships, Father, with a gravity and a weight of knowing that we are loved by you, that we are declared righteous by you, that you're working all things together for the good of them that love you and have been called according to your purpose, that even the difficult things In life, when they happen, it's because you're treating us as children. You're disciplining us to make us even better, to help us to flourish and to be great, Father, that it's all done in love, Father. And Father, I pray that we would experience joy as we look at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.